You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of East Bay Yesterday. As always, I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Earlier this year, I was approached about a really exciting project. The city of Richmond was putting together a tour, and they asked if I would be interested in gathering oral histories for it. Uh, If you've ever listened to this show, you know how much I love to interview people, especially elders, about local history. So, of course, I jumped at the opportunity. That project is now officially out, and it's called Rooted in Richmond. Essentially, it's a free app that allows users to take a self-guided tour that covers 16 stops over 6 miles. There's maps, photos, videos, uh, 3D renderings of historic objects, and the part I did, which consists of short audio segments. Now, I recently learned that in 2022 alone, East Bay Yesterday was listened to by people in more than 30 different countries which tells me that there are a a lot of folks interested in this area that don't live around here. So I thought for today's episode, I'd share a few of the audio clips from the tour, along with one bonus cut that you won't hear anywhere else. Uh, If you do live in the Bay Area, though, nothing beats doing it in person. And uh, there's a ton of great food up in Richmond, too. So, you know, there's an idea for a fun day if you uh, have any time off coming up for the holidays. Okay. Full disclosure, I'm not from Richmond, so I wanted to bring in a special guest today to give some context to these clips and share some personal stories. So you'll also be hearing from Desiree Heverow on today's episode. Desiree was not only born and raised in Richmond, but she's (laughs) currently living inside two of Richmond's most historic structures. Okay, that might sound a little confusing, so let me back up a bit. Desiree told me that growing up and going to school here, she never learned much about her hometown's history. But about a dozen years ago, she started getting really interested. And this curiosity profoundly changed her life. First, she joined the board of the East Brother Light Station, which is a historic lighthouse located just off the coast, uh, north of Richmond, and is now operated as a very unique bed and breakfast. During the first 14 months of the pandemic, since East Brother couldn't take in guests, Desiree volunteered to live alone on the secluded island and be the emergency lighthouse keeper. She has also been the director of the Richmond Museum of History, and she's currently the manager of the historic Hotel Mac in Point Richmond, where we recorded our interview. You'll be hearing more about the hotel's history later. Uh, Oh, and one more thing. When she's not staying at the hotel, she's living on board the Red Oak Victory Ship, which is the last survivor of the 740 ships manufactured at Richmond's Kaiser Shipyards during World War II. You'll also be hearing more about that later, too. So, yeah, to say that Desiree is immersed in Richmond history is not hyperbole. Real quick, before we get to Desiree's adventures, I should note that the Rooted in Richmond app was developed by the Richmond Historic Preservation Commission, 
in partnership with the Richmond Museum Association, the National Park Service, and the California Office of Historic Preservation. Uh, and also that the tour was developed from a community outreach process that involved neighborhood councils and community groups uh, to ensure that it covered important stories ranging from Ohlone shell mounds and indigenous history to blues clubs and environmental justice movements. Uh, it covers a lot of territory. Shout out to John Haber for the narration. Oh, and uh, yes, it is bilingual, so you can get the captions in Spanish. And uh, within the next couple days, you should be able to get the audio narration in Spanish as well. Okay, moving on to the tour itself. Uh, you know, we know from those shell mounds I just mentioned a minute ago that humans have been living in what is now called Richmond for thousands of years. But I'm going to kick off today's episode with a story from World War II, because those years had such a dramatic impact on shaping Richmond into what it is today. This first clip features Shirley Ann Wilson Moore, who is the author of a book called To Place Our Deeds, The African American Community in Richmond, California, 1910 through 1963. This clip is from tour stop number 11 at Atchison Village, which was originally the first public housing project built for workers at the Kaiser Shipyards, and uh, is one of the few developments from that time that still exists today. All right, so picture this. It's the early 1940s. Workers are flooding into Richmond, and housing is incredibly scarce. Even though employment discrimination in wartime industries was technically outlawed, that didn't do anything to help black workers who faced limited options due to housing segregation. And even after the war years, lack of housing was still a huge problem for Richmond's black community. In this clip, Dr. Moore talks about that challenge and how people stood up against it. With the housing market really tightening and the race really coming to the forefront when more and more African-Americans began pouring into the city because there were job opportunities, industrial opportunities with the shipyards and the other wartime um, industries, blacks were more and more shunted to segregated areas in the city, and North Richmond was one of them. Even with the, you know, the building of wartime housing by the federal government, it was difficult to live outside of the confines that their race determined where they were to live. Even the federal government bowed to prejudices and segregation when they built housing, wartime housing projects. And when those houses, when that wartime housing was torn down and communities, new post-war communities began to be built in the area, blacks were excluded from living in those communities. So you can see how housing would become a, a major issue in the post-war push for equality, the, the double V that I talk about, double victory over Hitler and Japan overseas, victory in the war, and also victory over Jim Crow and discrimination at home. This was the double victory that that really um, burst on the scene. And um, in the post-war period, in, in 1952, uh, Wilbur Gary was a former shipyard worker, and he um, and his wife and seven children, they had outgrown their home, their apartment, 
in the housing, the wartime housing project unit in which they'd lived, and they'd lived there for eight years. Now, this is, um, uh, again, you know, the, the projects are being torn down, and the new homes are being built, but they're exclusively for whites, and they're really squeezing the the black pop or tr- attempting to squeeze the black population out of the city. So Gary was a contractor. He persuaded a white intermediary to negotiate the purchase of a three-bedroom house in uh, the Rollingwood district of um, Richmond. This was a segregated, uh, racially segregated district. So his white friend made the purchase, and when the family arrived, the neighbors around watching them move in were curious uh about the black man moving in the, the little white frame house they they purchased for eighty seven hundred and fifty fifty dollars that was a lot of money back then however when they ascertained that the the garys were the the real owners and would be the occupants of the house a howling mob of 300 whites surrounded their home the gary home and they shouted racial slurs and hurled bricks and tried to drive them out. And there was a cross burning on the lawn. The riots went on for uh, two days. There was a coalition of um, white and black residents who tried to protect the Garys, and the Garys finally contacted the NAACP for help. The Richmond NAACP, which, by the way, became the fastest-growing branch of the NAACP on the West Coast. And they got together a group of um, of people who guarded the Gary home 24 hours a day. Gary um, had solicited the NAACP because they didn't really trust law enforcement because law enforcement really let these riots continue. And finally, the NAACP prevailed upon Governor Earl Warren and State Attorney Robert W. Kinney to order the Richmond Police and County Sheriff's Department to provide the family with protection. The violence finally uh, died down, but white attitudes didn't change. They tried to buy him him out. The, the Rollingwood Improvement Association offered to buy back the house from the Garys at a profit of over $1,000, and he refused. And so that's the kind of activity that greeted blacks who wanted to press for the double V in, in, in housing in Richmond and uh, uh, actually around the country. One of the people I interviewed for the book said, you know, we were already Jim Crowed. We didn't come to California to be Jim Crowed out here. So the location of that tour stop was at Atchison Village, which is part of the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historic Park. That's such a mouthful to say. It's like <laughs> the longest national park name ever. And the, the park is unusual, not just for having an extremely long name, um, but also it's kind of spread out among several locations across Richmond. And one of those locations is the Red Oak Victory Ship, which you were living aboard earlier this year. I still am. You're still living I'm on still it. Still the shipkeeper. Okay, I, I I thought maybe you were living in the hotel. I I go back. And okay, forth. so you're you're bicoastal then. Well, so Asa Maloney, uh-huh. she's still one of the shipkeepers. Oh. So we trade off. If she's not on board, I am. Okay. And 
when she is on board, I'm here. So for people who don't know, what makes the Red Oak such a historic ship? And can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to be the shipkeeper? Oh, I, I love this ship so much. Uh, so Richmond produced 747 ships during the war. Mm-hmm. And most of the ships, uh, if they made it out of the war, not having been sunk or whatever, um, were scrapped for metal. Yeah. Yeah. Um and the Red Oak was actually in the mothball fleet in Sassoon Bay. Yeah. A lot of people probably remember, you know, driving over the bridge and looking over and seeing all these old decaying warships. Like, what's going on with these things? And that was going to be basically the graveyard for the Red Oak, right? That's exactly correct. Yeah. And it was inboard, so it had ships around it mm-hmm. and in front and behind it. And I think, really, that saved it from some of the elemental deterioration oh. that could have happened. Uh-huh. Not that it came to us in pristine shape. Sure. But it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, because out of all those uh, 740 ships that you mentioned, the Red Oak is the last surviving ship that was produced here in Richmond during the war, right? The last surviving ship that we know of, correct. So um, they reached out to the Richmond Museum Association and said, hey, you know, we think we've got one of your ships here. And uh, the president of the port at the time, Lois Boyle, made her deals and got the Red Oak back to Richmond, where she rightfully belongs. And it's now a floating museum open to the public. Mm. They still hold events, pancake breakfasts, old movie nights, um, 4th of July barbecue, that sort of thing. And that's just good fun for the city and good education for the people of the city. What's the hardest thing about keeping it up and living on it? When it leaks, when it's raining. Yes. Uh, that we, each year it, we discover the new the new leak spots only during the rains, oh, boy. and that is quite an undertaking. You can't just say I'll deal with it in the morning. You've got to get buckets everywhere there could be leaks. You're talking about a 455 foot long ship Jesus. with seven layers. You've got to go wow. through everything and catch the leaks. Uh, the leaks in the galley, that has to be dumped out every couple hours or it'll overflow and ruin the historic stove that we cook those pancake breakfasts on. Yeah. So a lot of pulling up from tiny little holds, buckets of water, wow. a lot of uh, dumping of water. Um, well, I took the tour years ago. And um, I mean, if anyone wants to actually feel what it would have been like to be on a ship during World War II, this is about the closest you can possibly come because not only will you be aboard an actual, you know, Kaiser shipyard built ship, but like so much of the original material is still there. It feels like it's almost been untouched, you know, for decades, like the way that you walk through and it's I mean, the the quality of preservation is astonishing. Yeah, we work really hard on keeping it yeah. as authentic as possible. You know, it's creating that experience. It's taking people back in time. Yeah. But yeah, things like the head were really hard for me to get used to. It wasn't built for women. It was built yeah. for tiny for little people who, who don't know ship talk. The head is the bathroom on the ship. Correct. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, it was never built for women. My mm-hmm. uh, toilet seat was spring loaded up which saves precious minutes when you've got a ship full of men. And three times out of four, that's what you need, yeah, right? Wow. So getting that down, getting on it oh really God. quick. You know? <laughs> it's like a jack-in-the-box toilet. You can't imagine. Oh, my God, that's incredible. <laughs> All right. Well, so getting back to the Rooted in Richmond uh, tour for a second, it, I just want to you know clarify for people, it's not exclusively about World War II, but so much of Richmond's history does sort of revolve around the era. And while we're on that topic, I want to share another clip from the tour. 
This one features an interview that I did with Flora Ninomiya, who actually lived through that era. She's she's in her 80s now, but she has this incredible memory. And um, even though Flora's grandfather had come to Richmond all the way back in 1913, because her family was of Japanese ancestry, her whole family was rounded up, um, along with the rest of California's Japanese and Japanese-American population, and shuttled off to mass incarceration camps for most of the war. I should add that uh, at the beginning of the war, Richmond's Japanese community was involved mostly with running flower nurseries. They would grow flowers in the greenhouses here to supply the flower mart in uh, San Francisco primarily. So in the clip you're about to hear, Flora is going to be talking about what happened to her family's businesses during the war and um, what she suffered through during that ordeal. My name is Flora Ninomiya. At the start of World War II, December 7, 1941, they had heard rumors that the Japanese would be sent away from the West Coast. And Richmond happened to be the area that was considered a war zone in that we had two important companies or businesses in Richmond. One was the Standard Oil Refinery and the other was the shipbuilding that Henry Kaiser had started. And for that reason, the government decreed that all non-citizen Japanese would have to leave this area and be taken away. And so in very early February, our family prepared to leave Richmond to obey this decree that said Japanese ancestry people could not stay in Richmond. But on that very day that we were leaving Richmond, my father was arrested by the FBI. And this was a shock, of course, to my mother. My father, being arrested by the FBI, was sent to equivalent to a federal penitentiary. And he was away from us for most of the time that we were incarcerated. But we left Richmond to go to Livingston, California, where my mother's relatives lived. And we settled in a very broken down migrant workers house. I was almost seven years old. I was six and a half at that time. And I had never lived in a house that didn't have electricity. It didn't have running water, no indoor plumbing or toilet facilities. It had a dirt floor. And I didn't know that people lived like that. It was just a total, complete shock. During that time, we were fortunate that our neighbor, Mr. Francis A.B. Sr., my father's contemporary, was able to work very, very diligently with his family and take care of our property. 
But he not only took care of our property, he took care of the property of our two neighbors, the Kauais and the Sudiharas. So he took care of four different nurseries, including his place during the whole war. And later on, we moved with the people of Livingston to a permanent camp in the interior of the United States in Granada, Colorado. And there we spent the remainder of our time that we were incarcerated until we were able to return to Richmond. Many people don't even know our story of being incarcerated. They don't know how we suffered and they don't understand the hostility that was met by first the Chinese and then we the Japanese. They don't understand the hostility that all foreigners face when they come to the United States. And so I feel that it's important to keep telling our story. Okay, before we um, get back to the interview, I just want to mention that that little clip of floor there was just really the tip of the iceberg. She's also involved with the Contra Costa chapter of the Japanese American Citizens League, which is involved with ceremonies and monuments to memorialize this history. Uh, Flora's also been a frequent speaker at the Rosie the River National Park. And uh, if you want to know more also about the Bay Area history of um, what happened to Japanese and Japanese Americans during World War II and the resistance, I should say, to that incarceration, mass incarceration, I did a whole episode a couple of years ago all about Fred Korematsu, um, who was one of the people that uh, challenged what the government was doing to his community during that era. But we've got so much history to cover today, Desiree, so I want to move along a little bit. And so far, you know, these clips have been kind of um, not really like the happiest moments in Richmond history and local history. I mean, these are things that we need to confront, um, but they're, you know, very, very challenging and and tragic topics, really. But I don't want to give people the wrong idea because there's some really wonderful and, and uplifting stories on the tour as well. And the next clip is about one of those. It's the story of how a brilliant mural called Richmond Industrial City was rescued by the Richmond Museum of History after many decades of kind of being lost, really. Maybe, you know, maybe people thought it didn't even exist anymore, but it was rediscovered. And I'm sure you have some thoughts on this and on the museum's role in that. But let's listen to the clip first, and then I want to check in with you about this mural. My name is Melinda McCrary, and I am the executive director of the Vallejo Naval and Historical Museum. The post office was built in the 1930s, and the mural went in right before World War II started. The painting process began in 1940, and the mural actually was installed in 1941. Um, in 1976, the post office was remodeled. At that time, the mural was actually removed from the wall, and this huge crate, it was literally nine feet tall, was put in a basement downstairs in the post office and subsequently forgot about. 
And um, when I began my position at the Richmond Museum of History and Culture in about 20, I started there in 2012, I met a gentleman named Fran Capaletti, who was a member of the museum and also very interested in, in Victor's work. And he mentioned to me there was supposed to be this piece of art that was lost that was in the post office. And I started asking around. And one of my board members from the museum put me in touch with a former postmaster who then put me in touch with a janitor, a maintenance worker who was actually on the ground in the post office. Um, I was texting back and forth with the with the maintenance worker who was a joy. And one day I received a text from him and it had a picture of a label that very clearly read Victor Arnatoff, 1941, Richmond Industrial City. And um, he actually let me in to the restricted area. And he brought me downstairs w into this old closet. And there was this huge, gigantic crate that seemed to hold this mural. I thought, oh my goodness, here it is. Like we actually found it. And that was 2014. And over the next five years, it, it took me five years to negotiate because so first thing I had to do was contact the post office um, and tell them that I had found this because it was actually listed on an endangered mural registry um, that and, and that it had been lost. Apparently, the the closet that the mural was stored in hadn't had lights for decades, so nobody really ever went in there. So I negotiated the loan, and I was trying to get the post office to let me come in and take it, and that that ended up being a lot harder than than I anticipated, but. One morning, I was sitting at my computer, and I'll never forget this. I was I was eating my yogurt, <laughs> looking at the news, and the headline was, the basement of the Richmond post office is flooded. And I, I, you know, I panicked because I knew that the mural was in the basement. Um, and I had been trying to get it out for oh, literally a year. It actually turned out to be the best thing that could have happened to that project, uh, to to the mural, because in fact the people who were doing abatement, the you know the environmental control technicians who came in to do abatement, they they had to take everything everything out of the the basement because they had to get to the floor to fix it. There were, I want to say like five or six inches of standing water in the basement for days. I the whole time was thinking, oh my gosh, this mural has been sitting in a pool of dirty water for days, and I fully expected it to be, you know, completely ruined. Well, um, I talked to the environmental people. You know, I got a um, the permission to come in and get the mural out. I hired some art handlers to come in on a Saturday. And they cracked open this beautifully built crate. And the art conservator who had created it up in 1976 built stilts 
in the crate. So the water actually, it got inside the crate. You could see the water line, but the water actually never touched the mural itself. So um, we, we got it out of the building and we got it you know we we drove it the six blocks or whatever to the to the museum we finally after you know a couple of months of having it at the museum were able to unroll it and it was in really beautiful shape um there was a few things that were wrong so we had some work initially done on it to fix some of the pieces, uh, some of the you know problems. And then um, it took me five years to raise the basically $70,000 to have it restored and put on a piece of, uh, it's called monotech canvas, and then actually have it hung back on the wall. Um, and, you know, we never really did get a large grant for the project. So it was really a a community effort to restore it in 50, 100, sometimes $200 donations. But yeah, it's really, it's a really interesting, it's very much like a, it's a mural of the people, for the people, and then again, conserved, found by the people including like a you know a maintenance guy all the way to like the museum people and then really restored by the people because it was in small increments that that we were able to raise enough money to really get it done so it it really is a a community treasure Okay, so I want to dig a little bit deeper into the Richmond Museum and your experiences there but before we do that for people who've never seen this mural, this Victor Arnatoff mural that, that that clip was about, can you describe what it looks like a little bit and, and maybe get into a little bit of the symbolism of, of what some of these images on that mural mean? Sure. Um, so you've got the Point Richmond Hills depicted. Yeah. You've got the BNSF Railway depicted. You've got Chevron. Well, of course, in those days it was Standard Oil, but uh-huh. I'm just saying what the modern day yeah. um, is. You've got um, city manager James McFitty. You've got women and some produce representing the Felice and Pirelli canning company that was here in Richmond that employed hundreds, if not thousands of people. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, the mail carrier, a gentleman and his son, old school bikes with the U-shaped bike handles. Uh-huh. Um, you've got the dock workers um, representing yeah. the shoreline area and the shipping. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that's kind of unusual for a mural of that era, because this was, you know, a piece of public art um, during this time of, you know, really rampant racism, is that there's a, a black dock worker who's depicted it seems like with a lot of dignity and a lot of respect. Right. Not only is there an African-American uh, dock worker depicted in this mural, but he's wearing an upper level hat. Mm. So there are two types of hats that are on display. The little kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it, like a golf cap. Yeah, like the kind then, of like newsboy type right, caps. Exactly. Yeah. Like, a, uh-huh. like a newsy cap. Yeah. Uh, and then a fedora. Yeah. Um, the African-American gentleman is depicted in the fedora, an upper level position. So for people that want to go see the mural in person, what's going on with the Richmond Museum these days? Is it open to the public? Are there, you know, um, events coming up or anything like that that you're aware of? It is open to the public. Mm -hmm. Um, We reopened this year in April after being closed for too long. 
I did all of the organizing, uh, getting things going again, getting reopened, getting staffed with volunteers, and it is open to the public. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Excellent. um, From one to four. And again, to go see the exhibit that Victoria and I built around the mural is going to be, I think, the highlight of the trip. But I'm yeah. a little bit biased. There's a lot of highlights. I mean, that that's definitely a highlight. But I mean, it's such a cool museum. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to see there. So I, I hope I encourage everyone to go check it out. And you know, sticking with this theme of sort of revitalization, you know, bringing things back um, to their former glory. I think that that concept of you know rejuvenating Richmond through various projects is kind of one of the themes of this tour. Um, really uplifting this town's incredible history. So like one of the tour stops, for example, is Richmond's historic Civic Center building, um, which was designed by the renowned architect, Timothy Pfluger, who also designed um, buildings I think a lot of people in the Bay Area are familiar with, like the Castro Theater in San Francisco, the Paramount Theater on Broadway in downtown Oakland, uh, a lot of other important buildings throughout the Bay. For that uh, tour stop, I interviewed Richmond City Manager Shasa Curl, who uh, played a big role in that project and speaks to not only how that building was renovated, but also all the work by local artists, the new work um, by contemporary artists, which was brought in to kind of enliven the space. And uh, speaking of local artists, this next clip from the Rooted Enrichment app features an interview with Rebecca Garcia Gonzalez, who has painted some really incredible murals throughout Richmond. She did one called The Essential Workers of Pullman in the Pullman neighborhood of Richmond, which is named after the Pullman factory that used to be there, made the cars that the Pullman porters uh, worked on, and uh, a bunch of other projects. But the one that this clip is about is about a really, really massive mural. It's huge. Uh, I think it's about 80 feet long located in Unity Park along the Richmond Greenway. It's uh, stop number 12 on the tour. And this clip is not only about creating community-oriented art celebrating Richmond and its history, but also how the, the process of creating that art is part of this bigger transformation happening in this area and along the Greenway. It's really, you know, not just the destination, it's the journey of creating this art. So let's give it a listen. This is Rebecca Garcia-Gonzalez, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about the history of that transformation along the Greenway. Prior to 2017, when the park was built, it was just an overgrown area that had many hazardous materials. So you couldn't take two steps without getting your feet stuck in something. And uh, there were crews and crews and crews that came with bags of trash to pick up uh, the, the metal, the glass, all the trash so that construction could even begin. For a long time, um, vegetation was so overgrown that you couldn't see who was coming from the other side. There was so much, um, so many invasive plants growing there. So also very dry was a fire hazard. And that's what you see in the beginning of the mural, all of those weeds and dry grass. But actually the beginning of the mural is a, visual description of how Unity Park was before it became a beautiful park. So this mural represents the process by which the Greenway was transformed from a place where people were dumping all kinds of trash and an abandoned lot to the park that it is today. So to do that and cover 80 feet of mural 
Yes, I had to sit down and really talk to a lot of people. It's really comforting for me as an artist to listen to these conversations and this feedback because, first of all, I have something to work with when I'm creating the final design. And I also am sure that I've listened to them and that I am conveying their ideas, which for me is very important. A mural is not a painting. In a painting, an artist expresses their personal view, but a mural is a collective project. It's like a play or like an orchestra playing together. So it's important that you hear everybody. But also there are uh, figures there that represent people from all segments of Richmond. For example, people from Point Richmond, people from the Santa Fe neighborhood. Basically, there is a person for every Richmond neighborhood. Once the park, uh, the structure of the park had been built, it was amazing to see people from Urban Tilth come and plant all of those natives and fruit trees and everything that they added on as part of the landscaping later. That's when I felt the park was coming to life once the plants were in place. It was really amazing to be painting something that described that process and to see the process happening. Also, we received a lot of visits from people that lived nearby who were delighted to see that the mural spoke to them in terms of showing characters and what happened in order for the park to take place. And seeing um, activists being portrayed, the mural there has some Richmond activists, such as Sherman Dean, who was part of the transformation of Unity Park. He came and actually sat and posed for me so I could put him in the mural. So did a grandmother that lives right on uh, 16th and Ohio. She said, I think I should be here because I've been a neighbor here forever. I said, well, can you, can you post? And she said, sure. So she is in the far end of the mural. All of this happened and was a very organic process while the park was being built. I think one of the goals of a mural is to continue to engage the public. And I think that if you choose your topic well, and if you involve the community, that really does happen. It's also a tremendous responsibility because you realize that it's going to evoke strong feelings. Okay, I should say that uh, if you want to know more about the history of the area around Unity Park, check out the Rooted in Richmond app. There's text that goes along with all these different audio clips and photos and more, so um, you can get a little bit more of a full picture. But getting back to the tour now, because we got a couple more clips to share this episode, I shared a clip earlier uh, in, in the show about how in the 1940s and 50s, black folks were fighting for their right to simply exist here, to have jobs, to own homes, not be run out of town um, by you know racist homeowner groups and politicians and things like that. And that struggle continued on, and a lot had changed by the 1970s, for example. By that era, black leaders, African-American leaders, were being elected as city council members and even as mayor. So the next clip features an interview with Ahmaud Anderson. 
And he's going to be talking about how that transformation happened and how a lot of the organizing in the black community came out of the black churches here. Ahmad's father, for example, Reverend Booker T. Anderson, was the minister of Easter Hill United Methodist Church before becoming mayor of Richmond in 1973. And I should also add that Ahmad's mother, Irma Anderson, worked her way up from being a home care nurse to eventually being the first black woman to have a seat at the city council and was also the first black woman to be mayor of Richmond herself. Both his parents were mayor of Richmond. That's kind of amazing. So Ahmad has definitely had a front row seat to the changes in Richmond's political world, um, which which he's also participated in himself. It wasn't just his parents. He's been involved as well. And um, in this very powerful clip that we're about to hear. I'm so excited to share it. It starts off with Ahmad describing how his his dad, um, the Reverend Booker T. Anderson, got to know Martin Luther King Jr. and how he eventually brought MLK out here to Richmond, California. Let's check it out. My name is Ahmad Jamal Anderson. I'm from Richmond, California, born in 1960. My parents came to the city of Richmond in... 1959-ish. Father was Booker T. Anderson Jr., Reverend Booker T. Anderson Jr., and mom, still living, is Irma L. Anderson. And they actually met in Boston, Massachusetts. My father was in the School of Theology uh, at Boston University. While he was there, he was the classmate of Martin Luther King, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And that's where their relationship began. My father was the Western Regional Public Relations Director for Southern Christian Leadership under Martin Luther King. And in his role, he did just that, be able to continue the message, the message through primarily the ministers, the message through the churches and the communities, seeking justice, jobs, and peace, um, especially during the time of the Vietnam War. And in that capacity, my father was a stalwart, specifically in the Bay Area, where he not only was the minister at Easter Hill United Methodist Church, which has had a strong history of political activity and activism with Reverend Lawson, Reverend, uh, Reverend Johnson before my father, and then my father and um, uh, Reverend Ron Swisher, um, just to name a few. The United Methodist Church provided a platform in this community of Richmond for social justice. Because being a pastor at Easter Hill not only meant that you'd be able to show up on Sunday, but you'd be able to be there at a city council meeting on a Monday that you would be involved in community activities and engagement with other pastors that you know integrated other theologies, studies of theology, which meant Baptist, Catholic, Jewish, Buddhist, across the board. So that's what those pastors had to be. That's what their resume had to be able to show, that they were able to do that. All right, so Martin comes to California in 68. And Martin stayed at our house at uh, 1131 South 55th Street. He was there in March. In April, he's assassinated. He was at Easter Hill United Methodist Church a month 
before his assassination to the day, to the day. That became a calling for ministers to take action, take action in a way that they became much more involved in moving the needle from marching every day, from boycotting every day, to actually running for political office. It was clear to us at that time that being being a playmaker required that you be in the game. And that game to us at the time was politics. We didn't own a lot of things. So we had to count on the power of the vote to get in a seat to become a power broker. In 1969 through 1975 was the largest mass of African-American men specifically to run for local, state, and federal, but primary local offices. This was a milestone for us because you had my father on the city council who had worked with Martin Luther King, who had talked about jobs and justice, who had pointed out these inequities, who worked on developing downtown Richmond, affording the opportunity for Blacks to own their businesses in such a way. When I walk down Cutting Boulevard, when I look at that social security building, when I see that police department as what it was and what it is now, when I see black officers, when I see black politicians, I know that a lot of that is because of this city is this city because of my father, because he brought them through the storm during a time just like this. Wow, such a powerful story. And again, um, if you want to know more, check out the, the Rooted in Richmond app. Um, by the way, I should add that I'm not sharing all the audio clips from <laughs> uh, the, the tour on this program today. I just kind of want to whet people's appetite. There's so much more to listen to on the tour. In fact, one of the interviews I'm not sharing today because I, I you know, want people to come up and do the tour is one of my favorites. It's with Betty Reed Soskin, the legendary park ranger, the oldest National Park Ranger in America, recently retired. Um, so there's a clip from her uh, if people want to download the app and check out the tour. It's free, by the way, I should say, the app. Um, for I mean, she's a local celebrity. She's a local legend. But for anyone who doesn't know, um, can you tell folks a little bit about who Betty Reed Soskin uh, is? And is she still doing her amazing talks at the Rosie the Riveter? Museum, do you know? Because I know she's retired, but I think she might still be doing like virtual talks or something like virtual that. Virtual talks, right? Okay. Um, yeah. She is uh, in her hundreds. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. phys- uh, getting her to be physically present can be a little tricky, mm-hmm. um, especially that we're not completely out of COVID, never yeah. wanting to put such a treasure of a person at risk for becoming oh ill. Yeah. Uh, but as you mentioned, she was the oldest park yeah. ranger. Yeah. Uh, she received um, an award from President Obama. Right. Um, I don't know if she told you in her interview how someone had broken into her house, beat her up, and stolen. Unbelievable. The pres- right. Yeah. I mean, Can't, just infuriating. Like, who? Yeah. I mean, she's been through so much over the last couple of years. Yeah. The break-in, having a stroke, but she's still... I think doing these virtual talks, which is amazing for someone who's like 101 years old right now. And she not only, you know, is giving talks about that era, that World War II era of Richmond, she lived it. She was here in Richmond working during World War II and has a really unique perspective on that era. So again, check out the tour if you want to hear that segment. But 
before we set up the the final clip of the show, I want to talk a little bit more about this place where we're sitting right now, where we're doing this interview, the historic Hotel Mac in Point Richmond. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of this place? Absolutely. So the Hotel Mac was not al- always known as the Hotel Mac. Um, it started out as the Colonial Hotel. It was built in 1911 by a single Irish woman named Kate Reardon. Um, wow. Right. That exactly. At that time, for a woman to take on a, a project like this, unheard of. So she garnered all the respect of the local businessmen for accomplishing such a feat. Um, And in about the 30s, it was sold to a gentleman with the last name of McAfee. He was the general manager at the Claremont Hotel. Oh, okay. And he changed it to the Hotel Mac after himself Ah. (laughs) (laughs) and it's it's been that the hotel mac ever since and when it opened in 1910 um sorry 1911 um were most of the people staying here coming here on business uh as part of the standard oil operation because i'm sure that was probably the biggest business in town at the time right this refinery that opened up basically just a mile or so um East of here. The refinery and the railway. Oh, right. right. Okay, yeah. Oh, that's right, because this point, Point Richmond, was the terminus of the Santa Fe line of the Transcontinental Railroad at the time when, before the Bay Bridges, uh, before any of the bridges of the Bay opened, the Bay Bridge, the Richmond Bridge, or the Golden Gate, I've heard that this was the busiest ferry system in the world at right. that time. So there were so many people coming out to California on that railroad. So, okay, that makes sense. Correct. Yeah. Right. <laughs> See, I know a little bit about history, too. I, I, do, uh, I do boat tours of Richmond, so that's one of the reasons why I've got oh. these facts at my fingertips. Uh, I take people out um, a couple times a year. and Pass my island? We do pass your island. We do a U-turn at your island, actually. That's about as... So we start at the Emeryville Marina, and we get about as far as East Brother. We do a little donut around (laughs) East Brother, and then uh, we start heading back from there. Oh, I miss Uh. her so much. Um, Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. People could stay in rooms here. They could eat at the restaurant. They could drink at the bar. Uh, Of course, probably not during Prohibition, unless you were well-known and got... Got a little bit of a sip of the hidden stuff. Oh, yeah. You showed me that wine cellar downstairs. That looked like it would have been a cozy little place to have a drink in the 1930s. Actually, I there's a room that's that's locked, and there's a board, just a little piece of a board that's missing. And I, I can't get into it, but I put my flashlight, and I can see some crude stairs. So I just would love for some tiny, thin little person to get under that crawl space and and search the whole perimeter for, you know, newspaper-wrapped bottles of, you know, moonshine or something. I love these these historical mysteries. There's always stories about, like, hidden tunnels and things like that from that era. And um, you know what? For anyone who doesn't know, we might as well put out the word right now. The hotel is looking for a new person to lease the bar downstairs. So if anyone listening to the show is in the market for, well, I'll let you sell it. What, what would they get if they leased the bar downstairs here oh, at the Hotel Mac? They would get the ability to bring the heartbeat of town back to life mm. um, and built-in um, built in customers. Everybody misses the Mac. Mm. There's no smudgies on the window all the time. From people looking <laughs> well, in. Well, of course, there's a lot to see in here. It's just like, I mean, it's kind of like walking into a time machine. There's incredible wood, incredible carpet, the art, um, you yeah. know, the stained glass, the brass. I mean, it really 
has that vibe of a completely different era, you know, pre-World War II era. Um, so uh, hopefully someone will uh, reopen it and, and everyone can come and enjoy this place because this is actually my first time stepping foot in this building and I'm, I'm just blown away. So mid-century there was a big fire and it was boarded up and then in the 60s there was a couple of people that got together and put over a million dollars back into restoring it. A million dollars back then mm-hmm. is probably like a billion dollars <laughs> now, right? Yeah. Um, bringing it Inflation back. Inflation has been pretty crazy lately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's still owned by the same family trust. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, Hotel Mac, um, incredible place. Hopefully, I'll be able to come back once the bar's open and raise a toast with you to the to the renovation of this place because it's just it's awesome. Um, so we've got one more clip to listen to in this episode today, all about Richmond history, and this is actually a bonus segment that you won't be hearing on the tour. Um, you know, there's only so much room on the tour, and some of the people I interviewed, you know, we talked for hours and we just couldn't fit everything in. But I didn't want to let um, this chapter of Richmond history go uh, unacknowledged. So I'm going to share something that's just exclusive to the podcast today, the radio show. You're not going to hear it on the tour. And I wanted to end on a note of joy and inspiration. So what you're about to hear is, um, once again, Professor Shirley Ann Wilson-Moore, that historian who wrote the book about Richmond's black history, who we heard at the beginning of the show. But this time, Dr. Moore is going to be talking about one of the most exciting chapters of Richmond history, the height of the blues clubs. Um, you're smiling ear to ear over there, Desiree. I'm sure you know a little bit something about these legendary establishments that popped up during the World War II era, renowned for um, bringing in talented blues, blues musicians from all over the country to rock all night long for the ship workers of Richmond. Absolutely. I mean, they had to go somewhere. There was not housing. Yeah. <laughs> so if they weren't going to the movie theaters to get some sleep in, they were going to these clubs to get some dancing and some drinking. Yeah, definitely partying all night long, according to the legend. So um, we're going to hear a little bit from um, Dr. Moore here, and then we'll come back and uh, we'll say goodbye. But uh, let's let's hear it. This is the story of the Richmond Blues Clubs of the 1940s and 50s. The city of Richmond has a cultural gold mine gold mine that needs to be shown off and exhibited. One of the the treasures, the deep heritages that needs to be brought out more is the cultural traditions from home that black newcomers brought to the city. The, The music, the blues and jazz, there's a rich, wonderful cultural tradition. And the war had the impact of disseminating that tradition much more broadly to not just blacks, but the whole nation and certainly the, the Bay Area community. The blues clubs were the place where the link between power and culture was most uh, evident. Blues music provided African-American newcomers and old timers with a cultural means to reaffirm their value and dignity. The clubs functioned as sanctuaries and safety valves where frustrations could be uh, vented in traditionally sanctioned and defined ways. And there is a person I interviewed who said, quote, those people didn't have too much, so they weren't about to let go of the music and good times they were used to. It made them feel better. 
I remember one lady from Louisiana had gold all in her mouth, told me that she loved to hear the music because listening to that music in Tappers, and that's one of the famous nightclubs in North Richmond, Tappers Inn, made her forget all that stuff in the shipyard. She always felt better when she left, end quote. So those clubs were oases, and many of them were owned by women, or, or run by women at least, like the Savoy Club, and Minnie Lou's Club. Minnie Lou was an amazing woman. Many of um, the women told me, and Minnie Lou um, was very outspoken about that her club became really a staging ground for political activities, for religious activity, and and she served as a as a employment broker. Minnie Lou's club was the first to, in, in, she was the first uh, person to get a liquor license. So she, she knew sort of the ropes. But she told me, and, and I got this in various ways from other people, said that women said, you know, they didn't come to California, come out west, to work in somebody's kitchen like they had done before. People would say, you know, if we cooked, in in others' kitchens and you know in our homes, we could we decided in this environment in this climate, the time was right to do to use those skills that were traditionally assigned to women, for our own economic gain. So we're going to cook. We're going to cook in the clubs. We're going to take charge of the clubs. Okay, so that was the last clip I'm going to share today. But once again, I want to encourage everyone to check out the Rooted Enrichment app. It's free. You can find it on the App Store. Uh, maybe you have a little time off coming up around the holidays. That would be a good time to come up here in Richmond, check it out, walk around, ride around on your bike, drive around if you have to. The tour is kind of spread out, so you probably won't be able to cover the whole thing uh, on foot in one day. There's um, almost 20 different stops, I think, so a lot to check out. And um, there's just so much to do and see here in Richmond. Before we go, Desiree, you're the Richmond expert. Is there anything else you want to share about Richmond history or recommendations on things to do while people are here? Uh, so when I was executive director at the museum, I, di- I made two discoveries. And uh, as long as everything works out well with the board, next year is possibly when we'll be able to um, offer it to the public, um, a collection of photos from a sailor who was on the Red Oaks Maiden Voyage wow. and his diary entries. Uh, so that'll and kind would of... And that would have been like 1944. Wow. Correct. Wow. Uh, and what's further is that there was a little dog aboard the SS Red Oak Victory ship named Snafu. So I'm working on bringing Snafu's story to life as well. Wow. Again, um, I'm hoping for next year. You're, you're writing a book about Snafu? Uh, the color, uh, like a children's book. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So um, it all has to go through procedures and protocols or whatever. Mm-hmm. But who would say no to such a wonderful idea that's, you know. What all... kind of dog was Snafu? Uh, we are not sure. Basenji is the best guess. I don't even know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> Look it up. Okay. All right. Well, Snafu the dog coming soon, hopefully, to a children's bookstore near you. Um, Desiree Hevro, thank you so much for talking to me today. And thank you for bringing me into this incredible building. I hope to be back sometime soon. And uh, your knowledge of Richmond is, is deep and lovely. Oh, yeah, there's that. Desiree showing me a photo of the little dog right there with all these. Uh, fresh-faced young sailors, um, you know, ready to head off to war. Um, Let's end on that note. Rooted in Richmond, 
app. It's available now. Check it out. It's free. Enjoy. And I hope you enjoy your time up here. It's a it's a beautiful town. Right, right, Desiree? More than beautiful. Awesome. It's an exceptional town. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Uh, in case you were wondering, I did get paid for my work of producing the audio clips for the Rooted Enrichment Tour, but doing this episode was not part of that contract. Uh, I'm just doing this one because I, uh, I think the tour is very cool, and I wanted to do this show for, for the love of the game, you know, the local history game. Uh, shout out to the Richmond Historic Preservation Commission, Jonathan Haber, and uh, everyone involved with making the Rooted in Richmond app. You can find the full acknowledgments if you download the tour. Also, thanks to everyone who's been spreading the word about this show. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, I just found out East Bay yesterday has been streamed in dozens of countries around the world. So hello and good day to all you listeners in uh, Egypt, Finland, Malaysia, Iran, Brazil, India, and everywhere else uh, on a different topic as we're now seeing social media companies, not always the most reliable sources of information. So uh, if you want to keep up with my upcoming events and other local history news, follow the East Bay Yesterday newsletter. You can find it at my website, eastbayyesterday.com. I also just put a few boat tours up for the spring of 2023. Not a bad Christmas gift idea. Uh, I see a lot of families coming out on these tours. Uh, and a lot of people do them as, you know, holiday gifts, birthday presents, things like that. So there's an idea if you're struggling to think of what to get um, your parents or whoever for the holidays. Wrapping things up here, I just want to give a shout out to Justin Lee, who produced the music you heard in this episode. And uh, that's about it. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.